Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mike Isratel. He's a bodybuilding and fitness consultant, Temple University professor of exercise science, co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, and an author. There are thousands of videos online about what it means to be happy and successful, usually all with different conclusions, but most include wealth in some form or another. But just what is the role that wealth plays in our happiness? Expect to learn why a pessimistic view of life is unrealistic, the extent to which money can buy you happiness, why living in the present moment is overrated, if trading your time for future gains is a smart move, how to find purpose even in jobs that you hate, whether worrying about the future will help you to be more successful, Mike's contrarian view on porn, the future of how AI will shape society, and much more. Dr. Mike is a very, very long time requested guest, and I can see why. The guy is very charming, incredibly funny, uh, and I really, really enjoyed this super wide-ranging conversation. I don't think we touched on his industry of fitness actually once at all in two hours. So yes, lots and lots of varied things to go through today. I really, really hope that you enjoyed this one. Also, you may have noticed that I hit 1 million subscribers on YouTube, which feels insane. It's 2,000 videos, 650 episodes, like 20 million hours of watch time uh, to get to where we are. And it feels really, really good. This week's been incredibly hectic, getting ready for the Chris Bumstead episode to go live this Monday. But I've taken time to be grateful for all of the success and the positive feelings and vibes that I'm getting my way. So thank you to everybody that's shared the episode, subscribed on YouTube and all of that stuff. There is a special 1 million subscriber video thing coming that's we've been working on for ages, but the subs exploded so much over the last couple of weeks um, that they overtook our projected timeline for finishing the edit. So you are just going to have to sit tight, but there is something special coming soon. I promise. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee. So if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom and MW15 at checkout. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 
thousand companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Mike Isratel. London is like my spirit place. I London is the greatest place on earth. And I love hearing all that Harry Potter bullshit. I fucking can't get enough. Anything in a British accent is just superior. I wish I spoke with a British accent. You sound smarter, cooler, James Bond, sex with random girls, alcoholism, you know, all the James Bond stuff. Mike, Um, my culture is not your costume, okay? (laughs) So I suggest that you stop putting it on and laughing as mine because that is heavily appropriating and it's not yours to wear. Yeah, I'm actually, I was born in Russia, so I actually wholly appropriated the language of your birth nation, get which is it. really offensive. Right, let's get started. Mike Isratel, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm, I'm super pumped to be here, man. What is the pessimistic fallacy? The pessimistic fallacy is a cognitive bias that the average person shares uh, is a very, very prevalent not everyone has it. Most people have it to some degree. And that cognitive bias is to take any scenario, any given presentation of data, any sort of prediction of the future, uh, specifically predictions of, you know, we have this situation. How is it going to unfold? Is the situation going to stay roughly the same? Poverty, for example. Uh, how is poverty? How bad is it now? How has it been going? Has poverty been decreasing over time? Has it been increasing over time? Has it been roughly stable? In 10, 20, 30 years, how do you predict poverty will go? Will it get much better? Will it improve? Will it stay roughly the same? And there has been a profound amount of research done on this. Uh, Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, is probably a really good place to go for it. A great sort of high-level summary. But uh, without putting too fine a point on it, uh, almost everyone is insanely wrong about understanding how the world works and that wrongness isn't, um, it's not normally distributed. It's not just some people overestimate, some people underestimate. Most people, not all, but most, are, you would think, inexplicably pessimistic. 
they think that things used to be better in the past, where in fact it's almost almost always not the case. They think on, on almost any global scenario that things are, are very bad today. Uh, to put it more technically, worse today than they really are if we examine the empirical evidence. And their predictions for the future, again, tend to be uh, very pessimistically inclined, such that uh, they not only think this, but uh, a sort of inbaked, m- maybe a sort of subsidiary of the fallacy is if you try to point it out to people, uh, it's an iterative loop of they apply the pessimistic fallacy to argue back to you. So they go, well, you're just a Pollyanna, like you just think it's all hunky dory. And they just apply another layer of pessimism to your attempt to correct them. And it's tough because you end up, uh, it's very easy to caricature yourself when you're a pessimist as a realist, or at least you're hedging your understanding. You're like, oh, if things turn out better, hey, amazing. But I think they're going to be worse. And at worst case scenario, they turn out better. Uh, uh, best case scenario, I'm right. Which other, which either one of those worst cases, it's kind of like a hedging the bets situation. And that's a common retort. So that tends to be how the pessimistic fallacy is expressed. Yeah. What was that thing about... Um the myth of wage stagnation. I thought that was a really good example of this. Yes. It's a very common citation that people uh, trot out on social media. And by citation, I just mean claim or what uh, the economist and philosopher Thomas Sowell would call notion. It's something people just say or think. It's not even caricatured as a hypothesis because it's not falsifiable or testable. And that idea is that like, well, wages haven't gone up uh, typically, they'll say, you know, in the United States since, and then they'll sort of year, depending on what literature they think they've read. Uh, typically, the comparator year is 1970 or the 70s. Sometimes it's the 80s. And if you look into this with like more than like five minutes of Googling, it just falls apart right in front of you. I can get it a little technical as to how it falls apart and then why, if that's okay. So if you look at, um, wages for certain kinds of jobs, then you actually can conclude that there has been a significant amount of wage stagnation. But that typically doesn't integrate as a few things. First of all, that is not looking at flesh and blood human beings over time. The people that had a given job in the 1970s, in 75, 80, 85, 90, typically their remuneration has skyrocketed. You're like, well, they have seniority, they're older, so that doesn't count. Okay. So we're not actually talking about real people that go to work and, and have the same wage year in, year out. And if you push people on this, like, okay, but that's not what I mean. What about new people coming in? And then you start comparing, well, is it really the same job? And then that sort of floats away. Look, is that really the same job? It turns out that we're actually comparing much easier jobs. So they used to pay really good wages for brutal, like central Indiana factory work with no air conditioning or chance of death. It was like decent. And nowadays you just press a button and the machine dumps the steel into the cooling chamber and you're drunk the entire time. And you're a union member. You can't get fired. No big deal. So it's totally non-comparable work. And another big one is a lot of times they don't compare they compare wages and wages in some sectors have gone up a little bit or actually stagnated, but they don't compare total compensation. So in the 1970s, you got your wage, middle finger, see you tomorrow and your you know shift number one. Nowadays, and over time since the 70s until today, you're getting an insanely richer uh, offering of health benefits, daycare, time off, bonus structure, a bunch of different other ways to compensation. So if you are, and I don't want to say intellectually honest because that says the opposing side is intellectually dishonest. Usually they're not. It's just people hear stuff and a pessimistic fallacy rounds in and are 
duh. And if you are trying to find intellectually the best comparison, what you're going to do is look for a better comparison, more a more valid comparison, and something like median income is a good idea. Mean average income, like GDP per capita, is a little tainted because like, if you have a trillion billionaires and everyone else is dirt poor, more billionaires, they just drag up that average, but the median doesn't drag up the average. Uh, so the richer, super rich people and super poor people don't drag it up. So you really are looking at like, what does the average person make? If you look at median income and total compensation, that has just been going like that for every modern Western country for as long as you can measure it. And that, that is the reality of what people are saying, because when they say things like wages and you go, well, like uh, most, uh, many people aren't even paid in what you would call a wage. Uh, some people get salary, some people get bonus structures, people get various other compensation. And so, uh, I, I remember, uh, uh, Thomas Sowell had a famous line where he said, you know, if someone's talking about household income, they're for sure just trying to use that metric because they're trying to paint it in a bad light. Uh, why household? Like what? Because household sizes have changed. Households are much smaller now. So if household income hasn't increased, the per capita income actually has gone up a ton because now households are two people that used to be six. So if people are saying wages have stagnated and using the term wages, they're trying to make things seem bad. An honest assessment would look at total comp, total median compensation per industry, per field, per IQ, per whatever. And any logical assessment of that, sort of like 97% of the time, the honest assessment is like, actually things have gotten phenomenally better for almost everyone. There absolutely are exceptions to that. What about inflation? What about the cost of housing? What about the cost of goods? What about cost of living? What about all of that? Doesn't that just yeah. erode away all of the gains that have just been made yeah, through yeah. No, wages? That's a very good point. So we can take a look at a few of these. Inflation is a decent point, except inflation has been relatively stable over a very long term. And so it's hard to paint a particular era of human history as bad because inflation is kind of a really steady thing that happens all the time. And it's not even true to say that inflation lately, other than the past, well, six months ago, and now it's kind of stabilized. Anytime inflation, here's another thing really quick. Anytime inflation uncharacteristically, go, uncharacteristically goes up, people spaz the fuck out. Inflation killing us. What happens when inflation is 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 low for a five-year period? Nobody talks about it. You don't even get an article about it. So you're like, yeah, like you only pay attention when inflation is really bad. So in, if inflation is sort of uh, anachronistically high, it's absolutely a concern. Usually that's just not a concern. First point. Second point is the uh, there is another, as I said, so like median uh, average income, uh, median, <laughs> median uh, income per capita is a good way to think of how much money people make. Another uh, way to integrate the cost of goods and services, it's what's called time cost or time price. And it's for an hour of typical, typically compensated work, how much stuff can you buy? And that reflects some integration of inflation and everything like that. And time price of almost everything just goes down all the time. That's the most integrated, holistic, honest assessment, and it, it's improving all the time. There are exceptions to that. I'll get to those in just a second. But you can say, look, okay, with inflation, the picture isn't as good as without. So with a lower inflation, the picture would be better. Totally true. However, almost no analyses, even in formal economics, integrate the quality of goods because that is phenomenally difficult to quantify. 
So for example, say, oh, I only had to work XYZ number of years to buy a car in 1970. My uncle worked for a summer in 1976, bought himself a great car. Now we got to slave away for years. Well, what was the car in the 1970s like? On any given metric, it was a fucking disaster. It's actually illegal to drive most of those cars on the road because they just like the global warming actually comes out of the exhaust pipe. It's not even pollutants. It's just like straight up like little Al Gore particles come out. So and it's, the thing is like weighs 30 fucking tons. It uses only leaded gasoline, which again, just poisons children directly. It's just child poison comes out of that thing. So if you look at it, you're like, okay, this is this is not the same thing. A car is not a car is not a car. And if you take any attempt to integrate quality into that, you look, oh, shit's been getting way, way better. At the very least, cancels out any inflationary effects. However, there are exceptions to that rule. And I'm not aware of any of those exceptions, which are not the result of government interference. I know I sound like a crazy libertarian. But it's just true. And in, in most of economics, it's not even controversial. For example, housing. Uh, economist Brian Kaplan, who's amazing, well, I, I surmise you should have on your show at one point. He's ultra entertaining. He's a, he's a man. He'll point out that precisely in the places where you have a lot of housing regulation is where you have the least home building. And if you have lower housing regulation, you get way more home building, home prices per unit of t time cost fall drastically. And so the cost of living crisis is almost always caused, just straight up caused by excessive government regulation. And if you deregulate, the cost of living gets like a trillion times better. And a trillion is a mild exaggeration, nonetheless serves the point. So if you look at the industries which are uh, not following the trends of uh, essentially becoming cheaper and time cost over time, which is, by the way, the, the baseline trend, everything becomes time cost cheaper and higher quality over time. The things that don't follow that are the things that have, without exception, I believe, the most intrusive government regulation. And not just intrusive, because regulation isn't just this demon that's bad. There is absolutely such a thing as intelligent regulation that you need, you must have some regulation in order to set a really good framework, a really good legal parameter system to make sure that things go really well. Absolutely 100%. So it's not anti-regulation, but there are more and less intelligent ways to regulate. And the least intelligent type of regulation leads to things that just spiral up in cost, usually cap off in quality much more than you would expect. Healthcare is a great example. Education is a great example. Housing is a great example. And those are the industries precisely in which the government has the most uh, to say. In industries like uh, technology, where the government has almost nothing to say, thank fucking God for the time being. And every time they try to regulate AI companies, I like shudder, I have like a Jewish panic attack. Oy! Um, you know, in those other industries, shit just gets better all the time. It, it's just... And I know that sounds shocking and some people will be like, oh, he's off his rocker. It's just not a mystery. It hasn't been a mystery in generations that this is the case. Status quo bias is a motherfucker in this case because people, you say like, hey, let's deregulate housing. And they're like, what do you mean? That Won't that cause like, and just insert wild, insane ideas. Just stairwells will start collapsing out of nowhere and so on and so on and so on. So uh, the, the reality is like almost all, all the ones I know of, uh, the elements in the economy that are not getting cheaper and higher quality over time is where you can point distinctly to insane mismanagement by government regulatory authorities. Why is it the case 
that this pessimism bias exists. And this is something that I've noticed on the internet as well, this sort of pervasive cynicism. I guess the internet flavor of it is a little bit different. It's it's more sardonic and cutting uh, and kind of backbitey and zero sum. But there is still, you know, just a general pervasive pessimism masquerading as skepticism or non-naivety. Yeah. Why? A, a couple of smart folks, maybe more than a couple, have speculated. And I find a few of the hypotheses interesting. I'll share a few of them with you. One is the whole idea that as a, as a cognitive defense mechanism, it's easier to be skeptical and cynical because then if you're proven wrong, you're like, hey, shit's better. Cool. Like it's like telling people before you compete in jujitsu or kickboxing, they're like, hey, you think you're going to win this match? You're like, nah, man, this guy's going to fuck me up. And then you beat him. You're like, you're the man. But if he fucked you up, you're like, told you. Like, it's kind of a no lose. So it really hedges your bets really well. Another thing is that uh, people often mistake, and by often, maybe almost always, skepticism for cynicism. Uh, I think what most people think is them being skeptical is them being cynical. I think I'm quoting Stephen Pinker when uh, I say a sneer is not an argument. Like a lot of the books he's written, people's response on the air was just like, well, and it's like, what, to go on? Where's the substance? Like, well, there is really no substance. And it's easy to be thought of as an intellectual if you can render some cynicism on something. Um, and uh, another one, which is sort of more more deeply rooted hypothesis, is that our brains and our patterns of behavior did not evolve for the today times. They evolved in the times of our evolution, where most of that evolution was in an objective reality that was pessimistic as fuck, just bad in almost every way you can imagine. Brutal. Like how animals live. You know, like I, I was I, I was like uh, uh, walking around my backyard and I saw like a bunny rabbit hopping and I was like, oh, that's so adorable. And then I thought like that bunny is hopping to get food. It's not like he has a refrigerator at home. He's starving to death at all times. He's in the fucking brink. And if my dog comes out and chases him down, he's just going to die. It's just total war all the time. There's shit hiding in every bush that's going to fucking kill you and has. And we all humans are the survivors of the people that were at least marginally uh, pessimistic uh, so as to control their statistical risk exposure. Like, like, hey, uh, one of actually, I'm just stealing... Um, a uh, gentleman who I heard in another progress podcast example, but it's like, if there's rustling in the bushes, right, in uh, 15,000 years ago, and and one guy's like, oh, that could be dangerous. Let's back the fuck away. You know, very pessimistic. But the guy who was like, ah, it's no big deal. Fucking saber tooth, whatever the fuck jumps out, kills his ass. And you're like, oh, that guy's dead. And he straight up either didn't have children or just to, to, to put a point on this. He did have children, but he's dead now, and his uh, wife or whatever partner can't get enough food, and she withers away to almost nothing, and his kids just literally starve to death. I mean, this is insanely commonplace. It, it wasn't commonplace. It was default. And so it's not it, – that's the, just to illustrate the brutality of where we came from. So uh, a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of apprehension uh, is very adaptive in, in the, the times of our evolutionary ancestry. Nowadays – Fuck, man. Like if you walk on the streets of Austin, Texas, which by your complexion, I can tell you don't because you exclusively exist on the internet. Oh, there you go. Rep, rep, rep Texas, my man. So you just adopted Texas. I was born in it. <laughs> I actually wasn't. So 
Do you call yourself a Texan, Chris? Is that uh... I just shaved the mustache off that I'd been carrying for a little while. I've got a huge episode coming out next week, and I figured, do I really want to inculcate for the rest of history this beautiful cinematic production? We're flying to Stewart, Florida, and we're filming it on red dragon cameras, and it's in 6K, and we've got this film crew, and there's going to be me there with this fucking caterpillar on my top lip that for quite a while I enjoyed and I thought was pretty ironic. Uh, it's also, I'm pretty sure that um, a shit mustache is a counter signal for physical appearance, that the only people that can afford to pull it off are the ones that have got surplus, like, physical appearance credentials to be able to... Alex Hormozzi. Hormozzi, Hormozzi. My God, what a man. The guy, man. The guy is ruthlessly unfashionable and very hairy, uh, but rich and jacked out of his mind with a like fit wife so you know you say what you want you can get away with it um point being no having don't call myself texan no one's (laughs) going to consider me texan but these lights look that you haven't seen this until the uh, color preset has been placed when dean runs this through our color lut and these colors aren't as flat you will notice that the hue of my skin really really comes out so you actually look quite healthy i look insanely pasty because i'm currently not very healthy at all uh neither here nor there when you walk on the streets of austin texas i mean geez you know there's a kind of a paucity of saber-toothed tigers and you can spend arguably the vast majority of your life never encountering want in it in a, in a, what it used to mean physical danger uh lack of food lack of medicine so where we evolved and was just like um the camping trip that never ends, except you have no propane stove and no medicine and no anything. You're just living in the fucking woods. That is like much more pessimism fits that situation much more. There, pessimism is realism. Uh, in our modern world, that's incrementally actually now quite quickly becoming better and better. Pessimism is more and more just simply out of touch with reality. And, and, and as a matter of fact, what we used to call like kind of insane optimism is progressively more and more realistic. Yeah. So that's the implication, right? If life is getting better, this means that realism looks like optimism to the eternal pessimists but is actually optimism is more realistic because what you're doing is you are projecting out the trajectory of ever improving quality of life, ever improving medicine, healthcare, climate control. I mean, this is one thing that people that talk about climate change never bring up, which is that climate related deaths have decreased by 50 times over the last hundred years. It's a 98, like it's huge, it's huge how much it's gone down because of climate mastery. You know, that we've got air conditioning to keep us cool when it's hot and we've got heating to keep us warm when it's cool. Also, interesting point, far more people die from cold than die from heat. You're not supposed to say stuff like that. Al Gore is going to come get you. You are such a boomer to use Al Gore as the (laughs) go-to... Who's Al Gore? (laughs) He invented the internet, you you Gen Z TikToking fucks. You're welcome. (laughs) Anyway, um... Yeah, my point being that you have this uh, real duality that's going on here that, um, first off, I don't think that pessimism is an a personal development, uh, personal de- de- developmentally useful approach for giving yourself an advantage either in life, in experience, existentially, psychologically, financially, in terms of business, professionally, personally, any of those things. I don't think that it helps. I don't think that it's an optimal approach because I think that you are your smoke detector principle, which you just highlighted there, is going off when it shouldn't be going off. But on top of that, it's becoming increasingly more and more detached 
from what the actual world is like. So, I mean, what's the answer? Is optimism the answer? Should people just be blindly optimistic now? Like, what do, what are they supposed to do? I'm not a big fan of optimism because it has that same stench of a cognitive uh, mischaracterization of reality. I, I think anything other than your best attempt at realism is, a, is an insane proposition. And I mean insane in the literal sense, like it's less sane. It's just you just realism and your best shot at it is probably my best bet as to how to do things. But because we live in such an increasingly wonderful world, realism, like we sort of just alluded to, really is kind of optimism. You know, like optimism's the new realism or whatever, orange is the new black. Um, that really is the case. So I'm a huge fan of realism. I optimism wigs me out. It gives me that sense of like When you say you optimism, know, do you mean mm -hmm. sort of undue hope for the future without reason? Yeah. Exactly. That I believe. I I don't. I think that's probably the best definition of optimism I've ever heard. Which, if you reverse the terms, that's the best definition of pessimism I've ever heard. Uh, so un undue foreboding of the future, you know, without any reason. So um, I don't. I'm not a big fan of optimism. You know, I've been you know help run Renaissance periodization, which is like you know getting getting to make a lot of money and getting all big and stuff and rocking the gear. But um, you know, I've been in multiple talks with folks in the company. And, you know, there's been talks of like 10 Xing and this and that. And I, I love the hope and I'm working every day to the bone to try to make that happen. But at the same time, I'm like, why don't we just try to one and a half X motherfuckers? And if that works out, we can 2.25, you know, like just keep the train, just do a good job to keep the train rolling. The idea of, um, just really hopeful future stuff. I just don't understand it. I don't understand. I, I do understand that cognitively being optimistic can liberate your psychological energies to do your best job. But I think that properly contextualized realism can also do that. And then you never have to second guess, am I just being too optimistic? Because you're not. You can say, am I being sufficiently realistic? And the way to determine if you're sufficiently realistic is examine your premises, examine the logic, examine the data, examine the, the trajectory, and just try to realign. So uh, that sounds like a lot of work, Mike. That sounds like, you know, it's much easier for me to believe that everything's going to go to shit and that the people that believe that things can get better are genuinely the problem and couch that couch that as realism realism and anybody who has hope is naive uh and they can all go fuck themselves a standard that become standard with like um a western tennessee rocking chair where you see technology and you're like nah, nah we had that in the 50s and you're just like you know chew your straw nothing is impressive everything's going downhill but the thing is you always knew it was going to so you were always right correct and you get the opportunity even though your worldview might be incorrect you have the opportunity of LARPing as someone that's intellectually insightful because oh, yes. it sounds being a skeptic sounds so much more sophisticated than being an optimist. I really want to fucking rebrand. I've called it toxic positivity or rational optimism. I really want to rebrand hope as something that isn't done by idiots. Uh, I would actually go as I would actually go as far as to say that the most stupid people I know are the ones that are the most negative. Oh, by a long shot. That's been my experience as well. Yeah. Very good. Talking about money, you just brought up uh, Renaissance periodization, your company. Very cool. Doing some good shit with AI as well, uh, which is fascinating. Thank you. You make money. 
even if you don't look like it. I sure don't. (laughs) (laughs) Can money buy happiness in your view? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. And if someone doesn't believe that, you just offer them a million dollars and watch them pass it up. Oh, wait, they won't. Right. So how can money buy happiness? I actually have a whole video on my uh, progress philosophy channel that folks feel free to check out um, about how uh, money can buy happiness and how it can't. Because in some cases it can't, but in many cases it can. So uh, it's like if someone asks like, hey, does going to the club with a bunch of your great friends and dancing all night really make you happy? There are absolutely ways in which it does, and there are absolutely ways in which it doesn't. Does it bring you closer to a deep inner peace and a connectedness with all of great nature? Fuck no. I'm on ecstasy, motherfuckers. I can't tell my own hand from my face anymore. Does it make me like ecstatically happy and as an amazing memory I'll have forever? Yes. So money is uh, it can bring happiness in a variety of ways. Uh, I can think of at least two, maybe three. I'll just share three. One is you can buy shit that like you like, because everyone likes some kind of shit. This is my work office. I usually don't work in the darkness like it might appear. Uh, although yeah, maybe I should. Mm, it's a little Batman vibe. So uh, you can buy stuff that's cool. And for everyone, at least some stuff is cool. And if you have enough money, anything you want, you buy. Amazing. And like, it will make you a little bit happier to have cool stuff. I'm just really not into stuff. I'm probably more the exception than the rule of that. But it's definitely a thing that that can occur. Another thing that you can do with money is to lavish the people closest to you in your world and or people far from you but whom you have a connection to as humans and want to help with any kind of support that you deem necessary. So if you truly, truly care about the plight of the poorer peoples in Africa that do not have economic stability and they have food insecurity, uh, yeah, I sure wish you were Bill Gates or Elon Musk so you could have billions of dollars to go give to their governments or give to the people or do microloans so that you can make actual people's lives meaningfully better. Let Money me just, doesn't buy happiness. Let, let me just jump mm-hmm. in there. Uh, yeah. So effective altruism. Which you yes, may be familiar totally. with, yeah. William McCaskill, the guy that yeah. the guy that came up with that. I went for dinner with him a couple of months ago, and one of the uh, if you take what you've just explained there, which I don't disagree with, if you care about global suffering, your one of your goals could be to earn as much money as possible so that you can funnel that money towards campaigns and, and agendas that you care about. But if you take this to its philosophical extreme, it can justify people doing things that are unethical in order to earn money to use it in a way which they believe is more ethical than the way that they unethically earned it. And this is how people like Sam Bankman-Fried can be given some degree of a pass from certain elements of the EA community, because although the guy has... I, by your face, potentially stolen some of your crypto. What you do have is someone who is like, look, I'm going to damage some people a little in order to help the world a lot. Because mm-hmm. it's actually a very sort of um, uh, solipsistic view of the world. It's, it's a very sort of bourgeois. You look, the, 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 the fucking the common folk, the plebeians down there, they don't really know how to spend the money. And if we had it, we would spend it on more plebeian, more common folk than they totally. are. And we are simply arbitraging the semi-idiots down to the real idiots. And I am I, I, here to lift them out of their sort of squalid, mired, awful lives. Excellent. I have a few things to say about that. One, 
is I will not stand by while you tarnish the reputation of the great Sam Bankman (laughs) on a a few levels. (laughs) One is he is just a good person. And I don't want to hear it about this and that embezzlement nonsense. If you are going to simply compliment anybody that's got more hair than you, there is a very, very, very long list of people that are going to come. Not only does he have, am I allowed to say really politically incorrect shit on here? Or am I just going to fire away? This is going to get me fucking canceled for sure. When the Sam Bankman freed shit uh, happened, uh, one of the first articles I saw was like, he's in the Bahamas in a $40 million house. And he's like, um, a bunch of people that work for his company, they're having like relations, like sexual malfeasance with each other. And so like, oh God, I'm going to hell. I, I, I really am joking about this. People are so much more than their appearance. Look at me. I'm fucking hideous. All, it's all jokes. Then I Google around. I see where the orgies, who the people were. And I was like, oh. Oh my God! These are the some of the least attractive people I've ever. I would seen have paid. Life. I would have paid good money. I would have paid out. close to Sam Bankman Fried's net worth <laughs> to not be in that polycule. Cash me out. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm. I just actually something came up. I'm going to take a flight the fuck out of the Bahamas forever. <laughs> See you guys never. Yeah. You were actually, raised. to be fair, I would. I would have probably paid that amount of money simply to have not been in the room and observed Sam Bankman freed naked oh. with those people. Like I, I wouldn't have even had it. to, yeah, I wouldn't have even had to risk being involved in it, but just being near it, the smell, the sights, the sounds. Ooh, the smell must have been legendary. Listen, Sam Bankman freed I'm not, it's not the hair that I'm jealous about. It's the physique. The man is a fucking Adonis. And I will not be corrected, but I'm actually an expert in physique, believe it or not. And he's just like, there's Mr. Olympias and then there's Sam Bankman freed End of discussion. But to the point of people can do illicit or nefarious things for money, I think is a absolutely a valid point that is entirely different from the point of how can money make you happy? Like sex can make you happy, but if you take sex from people that are not interested in giving it to you, that's called rape and it's one of the worst things in the world, right? The idea that rape exists is in no way a counter a, a counter to the idea that sex can make you happy. So, so just to, to put an intellectual uh, sort of thing in there, and then uh, so, but yes, there there are many many ways to help other people with money, and I don't just mean sending it to Africa for the the, the, the peoples over there. I mean like you have relatives and friends, and some of them aren't famous YouTubers, and they don't have a ton of money. And you can give them gifts on their birthdays that like blow them away. Like having rich friends is fucking sweet that everyone who's not rich thinks having rich friends is fucking like a fantasy. And when it Even happens, the people who are rich think that having rich friends is fucking sweet too. 100%. Yeah. It's like Alex Hormozzi always says there's levels to it. So he has like a hundred million dollars or whatever. And I was like, how does it feel? And he's like, eh. like as soon as you get into that world, people are like, oh, like I bought a yacht that costs 500 million. And they're like, oh fuck, I'm poor again. Dude, <laughs> but- I, had a guy, I had a guy come through to do the show a couple of weeks ago and he flew from Houston to Austin on his G550 jet that cost him, I think it depreciated I think it depreciates by about $25,000 every time it lands. Oh, God. Each time it lands. My Judaism hurts from hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) Cries in in a Jew. Oh, oh, uh, my God. 25 grand. So that's both ways. That's about 50 grand to do it. And I was like, why didn't you just charter a plane? You can charter a plane from Houston to Austin for like 10 grand return. And he's like, ah, yeah, but you know, mine's got my pillows on it and it's got my seats on it. It's got my food on it. (laughs) 
And I was like, well, okay, fuck me, I guess. But okay, so there's you've got your uh, first one, you can buy cool stuff. You've got your second one, if you earn money, you can make people around you happy, whether they be yes. in Africa or next door. What's yes. the third one? Financial security, which for me in my night, as uh, so for the record, for folks that don't know me, uh, as, as I say this at some point, I'm uh, like, a, like a level six agnostic or whatever on the Richard Dawkins scale. So it's not technically an atheist, but I find the probability of God being real uh, is almost infinitesimally unlikely. Um, so I'm not religious in any capacity. I'm genetically an Ashkenazi Jew. So ta-da. Um, but uh, so when I make the Jew jokes, I have some context for that. But um, to my Jewish heart, nothing beats financial security because uh, maybe it's not the Judaism. But it really is the Judaism. But um, I am originally from from Russia, from the Soviet Union. I was born in Moscow in 1984. My parents moved our family to America in 1991. And in Russia, we were a level of poor that almost no one in the United Kingdom, Western Europe, or America can actually just contextualize. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then when we came to America, we had to build from the ground up. So I was, I've been poor or middle class or whatever, lower middle class, essentially my entire life. And I became very aware at a young age that if my parents couldn't make money to feed us, where does the food come from? And this house that we have, I don't know how to build a house. My parents paid some money to live here, to rent it or to buy it. And the idea that they have money now to pay for things now uh, and that if they don't continue to be productive for any number of uh, unfortunate reasons, that these good things will come to an end. So if you find yourself in the position of an income stream that can more than pay for your current expenses, your logical course of action, if you think it through for a little while, is to whatever kind of investing you do, and I, I almost exclusively do only very low risk investing, again, profound Judaism strikes, and uh, risk. <laughs> so uh, that to me is like, okay, if I make enough money now, I can get to a point where even if things go totally south, I'll have enough to live on for XYZ number of years, maybe in perpetuity. And Jesus Christ, a guaranteed living, even if things go bad. I mean, Chris, you got to think about it. In the context of world history, paradise is real and we're here. Yeah. So what financial security is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So when we compare what we've spoken about so far, so getting stuff, helping people in the world that you care about and financial security, I know, and everyone will be aware of the study up to $70,000 per year, you have this sort of increase in happiness. And then beyond that point, it seems like it's related to, there's like some studies that say it's related to life satisfaction, which kind of pivots it from happiness to life satisfaction. That to me seems like a sort of status for keeping up with the Joneses comparative relativist type, type world. Then sure. I had uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz on the show, and he's a data scientist, so I trust him completely. Uh, and he's oh, Jewish, and he's Jewish, which is great. So Ainfully. I have to, has to, have to trust him. With a name like that, my God. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah, he's really Jewish. He's more Jewish than you. Um, he's got less, he has less foreskin than you do. He has less foreskin than you do, okay? Uh, so he said, <laughs> he said, I hope not. He said that Every uh, increase in happiness that you get takes another doubling of money. So let's say that it's it's seventy thousand dollars. Then it would be one forty to mm -hmm. achieve the same increase. Then it would be two eighty. Then it would be five sixty. So on and so forth. In order to achieve the same, so you get this diminishing return. Yeah. Uh, I don't know which one's true, but it seems like there is a difference between avoiding discomfort. Like a lack of money can make you miserable, but does lots of money make you happier? It's up to some degree, it does, but when it comes to getting rich and 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 um, 
how much people value money and chasing success and stuff like that. I know that you have a thesis that all of this is wildly undervalued and being in the present moment is wildly overvalued. And you took a great uh, rejoined at, at pushing back against a thesis that I had around happiness and success and the directness of the of the route between it. What is your uh, perspective on? Is it okay rich? if I take those quotes out and actually just look at them? Hit me, hit me in the hit me in the face with them. Yeah, that's cool. All quote right. me, quote me back to myself on my own podcast, like some sort of human centipede of. Here's being- where you lied to people. <laughs> so, you know, by implication, of course. So let's see. And I click on the Instagram and it shows me the things that I want to see. So, uh, you have, I love your Insta, by the way, cause I, um, it shows up on mine and I guess excellent quotes and stuff like that, that I love to see. Thank you. So, uh, let's see. We trade things we want time for the thing was just supposed to for the thing which is supposed to get it, money. We give up time to make money so that we can finally have more time when we have enough money. We give up happiness to achieve success so that we can finally enjoy happiness when we achieve enough success. I have a lot of things to say about that, but I'll probably just say a few. If making valuable things to provide to other people so they can exchange value in return for them and make you money and make you successful. And they get happier because they voluntarily pay for your stuff. For example, Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook and Facebook made me way happier than without Facebook. I've done incredible things. I've been at, managed to help tons and millions of millions, hundreds of thousands of people through Facebook. So if I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I'm engineering this monster called Facebook, I am engaged, sure, definitely in the pursuit of money, But in that pursuit, I'm doing two things. I am having a profound effect of of beneficence on other people. And that's how I'm using my time versus just like being in nature and staring at the fucking animals and shit and being all at peace, which is dope. It's awesome. And I do absolutely have a, a practice of Vipassana meditation myself. So I speak about that a ton. But not only do you get that is the pursuit of success, the pursuit of money can be a meditative practice in and of itself. My happiest that I ever am is when I am, by the way, I'm in uh, my my, uh, home office. It is a completely white, nothing on the walls, windowless basement room. Oh, that's real homozy. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm in here, either listening to total silence or to down-tempo electronic music of various sorts, and I'm working on algorithms that we're going to code into the hypertrophy app or the diet coach app at RP, I am in an unbelievably elated state because I'm building, I'm creating, I am meditating while I'm working. And that's how I make money. So to me, making money is the thing that makes me the most happy on multiple levels. The practice of it makes me happy directly. It is also the best use of my time. It is also when I'm most present in reality because I'm building, I am creating, outflow is occurring. I'm in a flow state. And in addition to that, it has all these cool ass benefits. Like, first of all, it helps a fucking gazillion people get in shape and get healthier and stuff like that. And also when I decide I'm too tired to continue to work and finish my training for the day, you know, like, and it's a weekend, I take fucking edible gummies and marijuana and walk around my neighborhood like a fucking idiot and everyone thinks 
thinks I'm some combination of criminal or steroid addict. Some of those things may be true. And uh, I'm just bebopping with my wife. I don't have a fucking care in the world because I work so goddamn hard that uh, I know that I where my next meal is coming from. I know where my one after that is coming from. I know my rent is paid. I know there's heating and cooling available. And I don't have to worry about what's going to happen uh, today, tomorrow, and the day after. That's why I think, at least in part, uh, work and money and value creation can be the practice that makes you ultra happy. How many people on average do you think feel, first off, connected enough to their work to actually enjoy the process of it? And secondly, like their work actually contributes to making the world a better place? Almost everyone who's not a criminal does work that contributes to the world becoming a better place. If I go to a Burger King drive-thru and someone hands me a cheeseburger, they have absolutely contributed to my world being better. And in a non-nominal way, they did a great job. Do you think that they feel that? uh, So, yeah, they probably don't. And uh, how do I say this in a politically correct way? If they thought of it that way, it would make their life better. Correct. So That That would be correct. It is, there's absolutely a way, and there's, of course, every quote that you post has a huge element of truth. Even I, some on the margins of my persnickety attitude, disagree with it. Um, there are so many people to whom work is drudgery, to whom work is a disconnected state of what, when do I really begin to live my life? Totally. But almost any job, if you generate, if you take time to think about it and you generate some fucking buy-in, and you take pride in your work, um, there are legitimately mentally retarded, and I'm absolutely comfortable using that term is actually what it is, mentally retarded people that work at Walmart that are present in their work and so fucking kind when you walk in and they greet you and they're smiling, they're having a good time at work. And what the fuck I mean, are you in doing your defense, with your- in, in their defense, they're having a great time all the time and smiling all the time too. They fucking they might, hacked the system, bro. They, so Shane Gillis, Shane Gillis has got this amazing, amazing bit. Uh, do you know who Shane is? Have you seen a photo of him before? I don't. Comedian guy. Um, and okay. he he has a routine where he talks about the fact that he has a lot of sort of mental retardation in his family. And he's he's able to pull a face that really transforms him into somebody that looks an awful lot like someone who, and he describes it, he just, he dodged it, but he kind of got nicked just a little bit. He kind of got <laughs> caught genetically by it. And apparently when he tells people about this, he says, yeah, you know, my, my, I think it's his uncle, one of his uncle, uncle Jimmy or something has, uh, is mentally retarded. And he, people say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like, is that okay? I hope that he's okay. Mm-hmm. And Shane's response is, I don't know why you're giving him sympathy. He is literally the most dialed guy that I know on the planet. He is having <laughs> the best time. All the time. He is a man that sneaks grilled cheese sandwiches into restaurants just in case they don't serve grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Um, yes, understood. Um, I spoke to a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberger. Super, super smart dude. And this was four Definitely not a Jew. <laughs> Never. No foreskin at all. Actually, he's got more foreskin than all of us put together. He said... I was talking to him about the fact I was a club promoter and sometimes I finish work late at night and I have this existential crisis when I go shopping. So I used to go into the local supermarket that was 24 hours on my way home. Tesco's. Asda. Asda. Oh, my man. I'm sorry, I stand corrected. Amazing. Fuck yeah. 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 I wasn't middle class enough to go to Waitrose or Marks and Spencer by that time. Um, so, oh, M&S. Oh, M&S, yeah. Yeah, get the Percy Pigs. So on the way home, I would stop off and I would say to him, a lot of the time when I got in there, it's 2.30 in the morning, I'm sleep deprived, I'm on my way back after just watching a 1,000 18-year-olds get drunk and finger each other in a club. And as I was doing my self-checkout, 
I would have a small existential crisis. Not a big one, wouldn't, wouldn't break down and cry, but it would just loom ambiently in the background. And he said, next time you go in, find somebody that's in there that's stacking shelves and just tell them that you hope they have a really good evening and that uh, give them a compliment. Do something nice with them or for them. Um, say that you're, you know, you're proud of them or, or, or whatever, like any, whatever you can come up with, anything. You like the fucking shoes. And what you've suggested here about people that take pride in their work is kind of the reverse of that, that there is just so much meaning that can be imbued in taking things seriously. And I think that this is actually related back to what we were talking about before to do with the sort of skepticism, cynicism, which is by being cynical or skeptical, you create a walled off garden around you that doesn't require you to genuinely existentially interact with the world. You don't actually end up being invested because everything's going to go to shit in any case. So I don't need- And everyone sucks. Yeah, I don't need to care. You don't care about the environment. A lot, some people do, that's a lie. Lots of people don't, who are um, adamant that the world is going to go up in a ball of flame don't care about the environment. They just believe that the world is going to yes. explode. And they're able to couch their- fear of truly feeling and integrating with the world on a, a, a sort of loving emotional level within this sort of cynical skepticism, uh, uh, proselytizing it as realism. And it means that they never actually end up having to, to connect with things. And I think that this is kind of the same, it's the same thing that you're seeing in the manosphere with a lot of the dating, uh, the dating advice that is being given out to men at the moment. It's that, if you see women as enemies to be avoided or uh, adversaries to be used and discarded, you never actually have to open up. You never have to face the pain of potential um, injury uh, emotionally. And I think that this oh, what is kind of women are you trying to pick up? Injury, holy shit! <sighs> hey, Ronda Rousey. <laughs> <Bam>. <laughs> um, but yeah, my point being here that um, in order for you to genuinely care about the thing that you do, you have to care about the thing that you do. And by caring about the thing that you do, you open yourself up to risk. So, yeah. And also, uh, mild to moderate ridicule from other people. If you take pride in your job as a Walmart store, you know, uh, stalker of shelves, you know, there the are many people in that store with you working that'll, it'll sort of like uh, render a kind of attitude towards you, like you know, almost like SpongeBob SquarePants. Like SpongeBob loves working at, you know, the Krabby Patty the shop or whatever. And he's almost seen as kind of Pollyanna-ish, like, oh, he's just delusional. And it's like, I'm sorry, what what part of being happy at work is delusional? And one one of my passions is to take people's assumptions, notions, and and to try to get them to jump a couple logical steps to see uh, where they end up. And maybe I learn something, and maybe they end up just being like, oh, I fucking never thought this through, so I was wrong as fuck. Like, okay, so you don't want to really take pride in your work. Try to take pride in your work because your job sucks. Okay, word up. So if you took pride in your work, what would happen? Like, yeah, but my job sucks. Like, okay, well, so what if you took pride in it? They're like, well, I'm a chump. Like, well, I'm sorry. When you take pride in your work, do they pay you less? Like, no, but I had to put up with my boss's bullshit. Motherfucker, you have to put up with this bullshit one way or another. Your cynical bitch ass puts up with this bullshit. That's why you're cynical. If he was like, hey, I want you to stay later today. See you going on my yacht. You're like, fucking asshole. Cool. Rewind. He goes, hey, uh, you got to stay later today. I'm going to my out. You're like, all right, sir, have a good day. I'm just going to be at work. 
You're happier now, motherfucker, and you're more productive. You took the time in front of you, the four hours of extra late shift that you were going to do, you leaned into the shit. Unless you plan on quitting your fucking job, what is exactly the point of being cynical? What is exactly the point of being detached from your work? Oh, man, I hate working at McDonald's. By the way, I've worked with a bunch of people all the way up from people who make nothing to make millions, and I've seen people have positive attitudes at every fucking layer of that shit. And by the way, number one way to get promoted is do a good job. Number two way to get promoted is be a fucking positive person at work because your boss knows that this motherfucker wants to be here. And by the way, any, any job that remotely has you interacting with other humans, almost all jobs, and especially in customer service, positivity is fucking number one. So by really owning your shit, taking some fucking pride, you start to do a better job. You're happier. Maybe you're not fulfilled in some kind of like, you know, transcendental way. Like it's still fucking making burgers. Although the deep thinkers and the meditative practices would say that if you really make burgers, I mean, really make them with your whole mind, taking care to be efficient and quick and answer orders. That is actually that that is nirvana. You can be in a state of great stillness and peace doing a menial job. You, you know, know, the whole of, one, leaf one raking my, situation. Yeah. One of my favorite mm-hmm. ones. I can't do it here in america but in the uk the house that i have back there uh where the kitchen sink is it looks out over the garden of the house and some of the best times that i've had of peace have been when i've been washing dishes yeah yeah looking out of that window yeah and if you really hated washing dishes and you're really cynical about it unless you have a plan to get out of washing dishes what exactly is the point of your cynicism and so so you really have a choice I either get the fuck out or anything I do, I try to do it at least decently well. And interestingly enough, a lot of the people who sort of promote or tolerate cynicism at work and with making money and stuff, they'll take a completely different attitude when it comes to team sports or even individual sports. Like how many people on a basketball team at a high level, is it a problem when some of the athletes there have like a man, fuck this kind of attitude. Motherfucker, are you serious? We're in the NBA. Fuck this. Get the fuck off my team. Michael Jordan used to fist fight people like that on his team. Like you come here, you give it everything. You are 100% here or you don't have to play for the fucking Chicago Bulls. That is, uh, so and most people will watch a documentary like that and be like, dude, that's right on. That's the attitude. And they'll go to work and be like, man, my fucking boss sucks. I'm trying to get out early today. And you're like, but your job is a team. Every corporation is a team almost exactly down to the nitty gritty, like an athletic team. The goal is for the corporation to do better for us to make money. That's the same thing as winning games. The losses is like, well, we don't have jobs anymore. Like if you lose enough on a team, you get traded or the coach gets fired and the social dynamics are very similar. It's a cooperative venture. Some people outperform others by a long shot, but if you're not a top performer, you try to help other top performers and the social dynamic of the team is ultra important. Everyone getting along. And another thing is, is if you bring a positive attitude and do your very best, that's actually all you can ever do. So a lot of people will just be like, oh yeah, no team sports, that attitude's great. And they'll go look at jobs and work and making money. And they'll be like, nah, this sucks. This is awful. Like, man, I wish I was still wrestling in high school. And it's like, motherfucker, you are wrestling in high school. Except now you get paid to do it and you don't even have to beat anybody up and no one smells, you don't get impetigo and shit like that. (laughs) One, uh, to go back to the original carousel, the quote carousel that you brought up just there. I understand that the money for, um, we trade money for uh, happiness. That one is more out over my skis. The trading, uh, 
uh, trying to achieve enough success in order to give ourselves reason to be happy, I'm pretty sure is slap bang in the middle. And I stole the original conception from Hormozy. Um, that post is written for people who believe that happiness lies on the other side of their next promotion or mm -hmm. on the other side of their next 10,000 followers on social media. Uh, and it's in large part written for myself as well, that I need to remind myself that simplicity and optimizing for simplicity when it comes to what you derive your sense of meaning and happiness from in life, if you start there and then win and fucking capture the entire world and I'm the god of whatever the fuck industry I care about, that's a fantastic bonus on top. I don't think that this is the same as setting your sights low and being pessimistic. I think it's reminding yourself about where you can genuinely derive happiness from. Because although I take an absolutely huge amount of happiness from the success of the show and the impact of the show and all of the people that I speak to, the money is a derivative of that. And yes, sure, it's kind of like being given a trophy. You don't do it for the trophy, you do it for the success. The trophy is a derivative of the success. Mm. But it's just a reminder that continuing to believe I'm not happy yet and all that I need is the next piece of success in order to be able to justify my happiness is a treadmill that for a lot of people never, ever ends. And I do think that it's important for them to be reminded of it. Well, absolutely. That um, I'll be happy when situation, it may even be true. You may be happier when better things happen in the future. Totally. And you probably will be. But does that prevent you from being happy right now, at least to the extent that you're capable. And I think a lot of people make another mistake cognitively, and they say things like, if I allow myself to be happy now, I'll lose that drive. And to me, I think the best way to architect your drives, if you have any say in the matter, sometimes we're just automatons that are doing our thing, is I don't like the idea of a drive for success that runs away from not success, that runs away from poverty, that's never again kind of thing. I much prefer a drive that is two-factor, when it runs towards more success, and two, it takes a lot of happiness from the run itself. Like for me, total amount of net worth is really cool idea. Like I have a certain amount of money. That's, that's awesome to think about, but income streams are fascinating. And the growth of income streams is fascinating. I make more money this month and more money that, oh man, that's awesome. And even more fascinating is the productive effort that brings those income streams uh, that instantiates them. So I think a lot of people like you totally rightfully indicate save their happiness sort of intellectually for, well, later I'll let myself be happy because I don't want to lose any steam. Yep. You can generate your steam from the positive sum game of doing your best. Well, let's That's where your steam should come from. Think about it this way. And Alex taught me this when we were on the episode that the three most common traits of high performing people, super rich, high performers was uh, a superiority complex, crippling insecurity and maniacal focus, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> I got the first two are interesting yeah, together. Yeah, precisely, right? So you have uh, the belief that you can do great things and that you're better than everybody else. You have a fear of insufficiency that drives you to run away from something that you don't want to become, and you're able to constrain your distractions so that you run in a singular direction without wobbling all over the place. Mm. One of the things that that made me realize is that most of the people that we admire the most have the least admirable internal states. So mm. what does it mean 
that the people who command the most respect in terms of status are the ones that you want to be the most externally and be the the least internally. So this sort of duality is very difficult to deal with. And the point that you're bringing up here, which is, look, you are almost in some regards momentum. You're built up. You've got this degree of inertia to how much personal development and, and skill set and drive it is that you have. I believe truly that for most people, especially the people that are listening to this, you are already on the train tracks to becoming something fucking fantastic. You're listening to content that a rarefied strata of the entire human history has ever been able to listen to. Like literally the greatest thinkers of your time get to go into your ears as as frequently as you want. Nominal you get, cost. Yeah. yeah no uh, cost. Yeah. And essentially, yeah. For, for essentially free. 24 hours a day, and then you get to take that and you get to change your life. Do you understand how fucking insane that is that you get to be able to do that? Worrying and vacillating about the outcome, I believe, gives you probably an extra 5 or 10% that all of the concern, all of the fear and the neuroses and the sleepless nights probably derives an extra 5 or 10% of outcomes because it will cause you to be a bit more obsessive, which will be useful. However, the other way to look at that is I could get 90% of the outcomes and discard all of the worry and concern. And it changes it from you believing that you are some sort of driver in a car that needs to frantically look for what direction mm. to like, ah, this is ease. I'm a competent mm -hmm. individual. I am in control. And as opposed to being the driver in a car, desperately looking around for the sat-nav to see which way I need to turn, you're more like a passenger on a train. And you get to observe the scenery as it goes past. The waitress comes by. You order some English tea. You have a couple of scones with, with jam and cream. And you go, oh, this is a really enjoyable process. And the destination is going to be arrived at in any case. And I truly believe that yeah. for a lot of people, that's the way it's going to work. I have something to add to that, if you don't mind. I think that the neurosis, the sleepless nights, and the worrying is a net detractor from productivity and wealth creation. Obviously, it's a detractor from proximate happiness. I think it's actually a detractor from making you more money in, in the future and making you more successful and becoming the person that maybe you could be in your best case scenario. I just think that any amount of cognitive bandwidth you spend worrying, you could be instead spending on solving the logical problems, which the worry is sort of maybe pushing you towards solving, but honestly, it doesn't push you towards shit. So for example, let's say you work in a certain space, you work in a certain business, let's say it's YouTubing and you have uh, so there's a topography about what the you know, concerns are, what your opportunities are, et cetera. Now is, do you need worry? to stay to stay attentive to that topography. If I zapped worry out of your mind, would you just be like, hey, like, hey man, like when is your next big podcast guest that's going to take you next level? You're like, fuck fine, oh man, who cares? I, I doubt it. As a matter of fact, when you're serene and calm and centered, you can probably see more clearly what your best path forward is. And I'll debate this to the grave. You're certainly more productive in any flow state when you're calm and serene and just just doing it, moving, 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 moving the fucking windows around on your computer, whatever it is, the kind of work you do. So the idea that this uh, worry and these sleepless nights somehow potentiate success, I think is the opposite of the truth. And I really do mean the opposite of the truth. I think the most productive people in this world are the people who care. Okay, and worry is not a, a holdover for care. Worry is care expressed in the wrongest possible fucking way. If you give a shit, 
you can be calm, serene, and mega productive. If you worry, that can push you into mega productivity. But again, I don't understand. Is it worry that surfaces concerns in your corporate sphere? No, you're supposed to be attending to those concerns anyway. I have never, worrying about something has done me zero good ever that I can ever remember. And boy, can I fucking worry. Ashkenazi superpowers activate. I can fucking eye laser worry. I can shoot a fucking jumbo jet down with worry eye lasers. Like, oh, you just really worried about the plane and the engine catches fire. Like, holy shit, that's instant karma. So <laughs> directed linear karma. It's, um, it, it, it just worry is a gigantic fuck all waste of time and life and energy and Oh, that's not a thought. It's not like if you ask chat GPT to worry on your behalf, it would be like, what? You can I actually help you with something. You're like, well, yeah, yeah. Solve some problems. And it's like, okay. So what is it? I, I never really do understand where worry comes from. And I'll say another thing really quick. I think the pop understanding of how productive people operate is that they worry thus they work, thus they succeed. And in reality, it's they work, thus they succeed. And the worry, I think, honestly, comes along for the ride in at least one major way is because a lot of people that are successful, the high IQ or whatever the fuck, just happen to be Ashkenazi Jews, and as a, as a holdover through evolution, are also fucking worried all the time. Like, Every fucking brilliant Ashkenaz that I talk to that's a fucking trillionaire or whatever, they're never like, yeah, man, thank God I worry. They're like, I, I fucking hate this shit. I, w- I wish I wasn't worried ever. The times in my life that I'm the most worried are the times when I'm by, by a long shot the least productive. And the times when I'm the most serene, I'm getting the most shit done. I'm being the most successful. I do not buy the premise that worry is a potentiator. I think it's a distractor. We both agree, I think, about um – some of the limiting beliefs around victimhood mindsets. And I came up with a concept that you have identified but not yet named, I think. So this okay. is what I've this is what I've called two-step potential theory. Okay. All so right. during an episode Don't pin your wacky ideas on me, the racist garbage you're gonna spill out of your <laughs> the mouth. Jewish conspiracy here. <laughs> you see the globalists, they have yeah. this big octopus. <laughs> okay, so um during this episode with Destiny, who's a, a left-leaning streamer, we were talking about the difference in the worldview of people from the left who focus on systemic problems and how they hold people back, and people from no, the right who hope is but anyway, sorry, go on. Who hopeless on anything about systems. Sorry. People from the right who focus on absolute achievement and how it can be gotten there by the individual. And this is what Destiny said. He said, if I was exclusively left-focused, I'd let my restrictions define me so I'd never bother to do anything. If I was exclusively right-focused, I'd observe how much further ahead someone else is, and I'd also give up shortly after starting. So he summarized his blending of the two worldviews together by saying, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can because I want to be the best version of myself. I recognize that how good I can be as myself might be controlled by some environmental factors. These environmental factors provide the range that I can exist within. But within this range, my personal effort entirely determines where I exist. So I said, let's call this two-step potential theory. It's a blending of individual agency with real-world limitations because your efforts have tons of control over your outcomes within the range that your world's limitations will allow. And I think I've heard you talk about this too. Mm. Uh, I think that's very wise. There's a lot of truth to it. Something that seems missing is um, what is your actual ability in that regard? How much talent do you have? Because you can achieve quite a bit of success working just a little bit if you're mega talented. And a lot of the reasons why some people do not achieve a lot of success isn't because they're working hard and is not because of environmental variables, but because they're insufficiently talented to 
do as well as they want it to do. So the talent's a little bit missing from that, but if we interpolate talent into that hard work into the range is hard work plus talent or whatever, and then you're in an environmental range there. Yes. Um, just cause we're sort of rapping about this. Um, I've met a scarce few number of leftists. There's, I, I've met a ton of leftists who have tons of positive qualities, by the way, I can enumerate any time to show that I'm not entirely biased Bigoted. against them. Um, but I've met a ton of leftists that use the term systemic, and sometimes they're sufficiently confused to, to confuse that term with systematic. It's, I don't know if they know the difference between those. And leftists are often, uh, they, they'll say systemic, 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 and they're oddly not concerned with two things. One, the deep structures that create systems and how they work. And two, how to augment systems to become better. As they'll say like, well, you know, like XYZ social factor keeps people down. Like, oh, I got it. Can you explain to me how that works in depth? And they just quote you some stupid Karl Marx or Noam Chomsky shit that just doesn't add up. And you're like, oh, it's clearly you haven't thought this through. They say systemic. And I'm like, oh, I see. So you've read how many tomes on economics and social theory? And they're like, uh, I got you. So systemic is a placeholder for it's not my fault. Got it. Because I think a lot of people on the left they're straight up allergic to blaming people for their fucking problems, which I don't understand why you would be. Many problems are totally outside the fu- of fucking people's control, and many other problems are totally inside of people's control. So let's blame, put the blame where it lies. Sometimes it lies in the person, sometimes it lies outside the person. And I think a lot of leftists just refuse to do that. And the other thing I think is missing a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times from people who are left-leaning is uh, you take a system that's, as they say, very flawed and racist or whatever, or genderist, blah, blah, blah. And you go, okay, is, it, is there a way we can engineer that system so to rejigger it at the, at least at the margins to make it better? And there's, I'd, I'd be not concerned with that. You know, like the, how many people who are like, claim to be uh, homelessness, uh, anti-homelessness advocates, or is it pro-homelessness advocates? I don't know which one it is, right? Uh, I, I'm pro-homelessness. You're like, wait, are you sure about that? <laughs> um, a lot of people who are sort of really passionate about homelessness, uh, there's like entirely bereft of of potential solutions to it that don't involve restructuring the oppressive capitalist system. And you're like, you're not really thinking about any of this stuff. You just have a lot of feelings. And before, you know, people get triggered, I think a lot of the feelings that leftists have are insanely good natured. My parents who were quite cynical, uh, they're from the Soviet Union. So it's understandably cynical. They think that most, if not almost all leftists are individual, super selfish power and money grubbing fucks that are just parroting a leftless line to get ahead. Cause that's all the leftists in the Soviet union were that by the time my parents were around, there was no real leftist left over. You were just using a system. I'm of the belief that in most of the modern countries of the world, most people on the political left straight up are just more compassionate than the rest of us. They just give more of a shit. It hurts their fucking heart more to see poverty and oppression and this and this and that. And that's fucking great. But you got to connect the dots to how do we actually improve things? And that requires two things. One, the attitude that improvement can be achieved. And it fucking can. It's not up for debate. Improvement happens all the time. So there's a system to it. And two, an understanding of the world in depth such that you can actually impose improvement. Like if I have an app that works poorly on my phone, I don't fucking know how to code. You're like, hey, improve the app. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like I don't, the C++, is that something that people use? Fuck if I know. But a lot of people who claim to care about social issues and claim to be intellectual about them. Because if you tell the average leftist, well, you just have a lot of feelings. They take that as an affront. Understandably, it's couched really relatively offensively. But 
they really just do. And if you're a problem solver, you can totally care and do a lot of good. And I think that's what's missing. And if you want a hot take about right wing folks, Jesus, I got I was all about sorts to of that. say, Might yeah, well start yeah, talking what, about what, porn. Hit it. What would you? What would? What would your equivalent be for the right? What's your concerns there at the moment with the modern iteration of that? Uh, also, a lot of feelings. Um, almost every take on COVID. For example, uh, from the more hardcore right, most leftist and right-wing folks are just normal, awesome people. They just want to get along and they just have some feelings about stuff. Really right-wing people about COVID, just batshit fucking crazy. Wrong on every count, unscientific, full of conspiracy, just totally out to fucking lunch. Um, there's a lot of right-wing, there are a lot of left-wing beliefs that you can't debate against uh, because it's politically incorrect. Uh, race realism. Like if you believe human groups have actual differences and they express themselves, you're not, you're not allowed to say that. If you ask me what I think about race and IQ, I'll just straight up tell you I'm not going to talk about it. I'll tell you right now on this podcast, I'm going to talk about it. I've said on my own fucking podcast, I'm not going to talk about it because I'll get fucking canceled. It's the end of story. But there's a lot of right-wing shit we're not allowed to talk about. Like P.S. Hey guys, a newsflash, God's not real. This is straight up not real. I'm going to get so much fucking hate for that. Like, and maybe I don't mean it. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe God is real. Maybe God is the universe. Maybe Jesus Christ had tons of beautiful lessons for us. Maybe he was really the son of God. But I have to walk all these things back now because a fuckload of people are getting a trigger. Uh, right-wingers also have a, a cacophony of beliefs that are layered in just like, I feel like this is the thing. Like they'll see a fat person and they'll be like, that motherfucker has no willpower. I'm like, I'm sorry, how do you know that? I'm like, look at him fucking pig. And you're like, oh, no, I got you. I got you. But how do you know that person doesn't have willpower? Maybe their hunger signaling is just completely out of control. Maybe they have more willpower than you. And if your brain was in that fat fucking body, you'd be 900 fucking pounds instead of six. How the fuck do you know anything? And a lot of the time they just have a lot of feelings about it. They're quick to judge the fuck out of people. They're like, oh, I know things. Technically leftists commit type two error a lot. They're, um, they don't like to put find points on things and conclude differences. Oh, well, you know, men and women really aren't that different or whatever. There is no intellectual difference or preference of men and women. And right-wingers commit type one error too much. They go like, yes, there's definitely differences between everything and everyone. You're like, you don't fucking know that. You're making it up half the time. So, you know, one of my, one of the painful things to witness in especially American politics in the last, let's call it five years, is this is, this is my summary of American politics in the last five years. Social justice warriors were just losing their fucking minds. And right-wing fucking troll proto-crypto fascists were like, oh, you think you can lose your mind? Hold my beer. Watch this. We got fucking Pizzagate and everyone's a pedophile and all this other shit. The whole pedophilia thing's fucking insane. There's uh, Here's another thing about right- right-wingers will do, especially with the Donald Trump thing. Um, they think every single left-leaning narrative is total fake news. And that a lot of them are. A lot of it's just straight up bullshit. Half the stuff at MSNBC is straight up lies. But what about the other half? And they're like, nope, it's also lies. I'm like, are you willing to parse the lie from the truth? They're like, nope, it's all bullshit. And you're like, okay, so you're just an insane conspiracy theorist. I could talk you into anything or nothing at all, flat earth type of shit, and you'll be totally cool with it because you have this 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 righteousness. And right-wingers bring that. And not all right-wingers, again, just the, the toxic elements, the insane people of, 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 the, of the parties. Yeah, there's a... Porn. Porn. Sorry. We have porn, porn as well, porn panic. We can talk about that in a second. There's one thing that increasingly I've been reflecting on to do with COVID. I didn't step into the conversation about COVID really at all. I did an episode episode with Johnny and Yusuf about uh, (laughs) uh, isolation hacks, which was uh, how to work from home, basically. (laughs) Uh, for big, as people who were basement dwelling sort of incels for a very long time, we, we had the skills. Yeah. You too. Literally. Yeah. Me. Um, 
Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to help people with that. And then outside of that, I just didn't, I didn't step into the conversation. I'm like, look, I'm not prepared to put the work in in order to be able to understand this uh, situation to the level that I feel would be necessary in order for me to be able to contribute without further muddying the waters with my complete cod psychology opinion. So I didn't. However, one of the things that I've reflected on, do you remember global uh, health passports? Do you remember yes. how they were going to be completely militarily uh, imposed on everybody and that you yes. weren't going to be able to travel anywhere and that the WEF was going to have your genomic sequence in a database somewhere and that this was you know, the first step on the road to a CCP-style surveillance state and all the rest of it? I noticed that there hasn't really seemed to be any real-world development toward that but all of the people that said that this was going to have happened in no time at all, none of them have had to actually mention why that didn't occur. There was once, dude, there was this fucking image of one squaddy, so one guy in military garb walking down a street in London, and it had been passed around on WhatsApp, and it went <laughs> fucking beyond viral, right? Right in the middle of COVID. And it was... um the UK uh, armed forces have been mobilized to go into the streets to keep people in their houses under armed guard mm. because of a photo of the back of one guy walking down a street in London. And this thing went ballistic, tons of shares on WhatsApp, and then it got picked up by the press and all of this other stuff, and it didn't happen. But no one actually, no one ever had to account, like the accusation never had to be retracted. And the same mm -hmm. as, you know, when all of those military vehicles were driving through Miami? Do you remember that during mm -hmm. COVID? There were all no. fucking military vehicles I going, believe it. <laughs> going through Miami. And I think that there was some clearing of the beaches or whatever, but it was like, this is going to be the, the, the purge. It was going to be like yeah. the, a, a scene from the purge. Yeah. That didn't happen. The global vaccine passports didn't happen. And dude, I am completely open to the fact that there's been governmental overreach, that there are uh, stupid policies Absolutely. that have been made by people who don't understand how health works, who don't understand how public policy works, who don't understand how epidemiology and virology works, and very well may have come out of a lab in Wuhan, and all of that shit. I'm completely open to all of that. But you do not get to spout off your fucking half-baked opinion just saying things that you think sound sophisticated but as a conspiracy theory, and then when they don't come to fruition, just be like, ah, eh, you know, like close my eyes and miss the dartboard with that one. Let's better have another crack the next time that something. Next. Yep. Yep. I had a fascinating interaction actually during COVID, uh, sort of tangentially related to COVID. Remember the whole like thing during COVID where like right wingers didn't like leftists finally had their one battle. I swear to God, I think COVID was like leftists, like shit gets so good all the time in society that like people who have a lot of feelings have nothing, nothing to battle against, nothing to save and fix mm. COVID. I watched it happen to people I knew on the left. It gave them meaning. It gave them the moment. war they always wanted, right? The moral equivalent of war. And so for them, COVID finally meant something. And so I think a lot of people on the right, like sort of hallucinating the pedophilia craze where they were like, but COVID, yeah, it's just wool over your eyes because pedophilia is everywhere. So I had a really interesting interaction on Facebook where a gentleman, you know, through the lifting community bullshit that I interact with, I mentioned something about Mark Zuckerberg. Usually I try to suck Mark Zuckerberg's dick as often as possible. So he's, he's, uh, his um, lawyers have several times told me that I will be going to jail next time I show up naked at his house. I'm still going to do it. I don't care. And 
I was like, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, great, blah, 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 something. And one guy was like, yeah, he's a fucking pedophile, though. And I was like, okay, uh, putting on intellectual hat and arguing to convince hat. So I was like, dude, for real? He's like, yeah. And I was like, dude, I don't want to support a fucking pedophile. That's fucking gnarly. Like, how do you know? Like, I wasn't being facetious. I was like, again, in the back of my mind, I was like, I find this very unlikely. But look, how unlikely? Like Epstein, this motherfucker had an island of pedophilia. The shit's real. It happens. It's just statistically insanely rare. But, it's, you know, like, these are fucking still children being abused. So I was like, okay, how do you know that? And he's like, yeah, man, like, my wife watched a documentary about it. And I was like, I like, we went into DMs and I was like, can you, um, uh, sorry. So he was like, no, sorry. He was like, uh, yeah, like I watched a documentary about it. And it was, we hit the DMs and I was like, dude, what's the name of the documentary? Like I fucking want to watch it. And he's like, oh, actually I think my wife watched a documentary about it. And I was like, okay, can you ask her? And like uh, days later I followed up and he's like, oh, like I talked to her and she was like, actually that never happened. What the, what? So you're like, you're calling an adult man with fucking young children of his own a pedophile like chris that's not like a second like nominal thing to call someone Pe- pedophilia is the most heinous thing i can fucking imagine right it's just like he's so comfortable just saying somebody's a fucking pedophile and he's just like hallucinated out of the fucking ether which brings me to another sort of unrelated point a lot of these same like not necessarily right wingers people of all stripes the pessimists when gpt's really started catching steam with gpt3 and 3.5 uh, a bunch of people are like, yeah, but they hallucinate, you know, they make stuff up. Motherfucker, like you don't. They're really like people, bro. GPTs are more like people than anyone wants to admit because they're scary like people because the people hallucinate too. People make shit up all the fucking time. I watched this guy just make up facts. He was so totally cool with it. That kind of shit. It's just like wild to watch happen. And it just happens all the time. There's no need for evidence. You just like say stuff and, and, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff to that. So yeah, I've got plenty for the right, but like, I don't know, man, I guess a, 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 if currently in the United States, it sometimes seems like the left is more in ascendance. And uh, if the right was more in ascendance, I'd have more to talk shit about that. So for example, in the 1980s, I mean, the right really wasn't ascendance, right? Like, um, they were banning rap from playing on radio stations in Florida and stuff. Like, the, the fuck? We have freedom of speech for a reason, right? And now the left is in ascendance. If the right gains ascendance again, I'll become a much better, bigger critic of the right because I got plenty of shit to say about them. So I get caricatured often as a critic of the left just because they're mouthy as fuck. And to be honest, this is going to be real insulting. On average, the data supports this. People on the political left are marginally smarter on average than people on the political right. And uh, evidence-based libertarians are smarter than everyone, by the way, on IQ tests. Just just saying. It's just real. Um, and so a lot of times I'll have – and also the left is fascinated with science. Like, hashtag trust the science. I'm like, oh, sweet. So you like do economics? I'm like, well, it's not a real science. I'm like, oh, word up. Right-wingers often have such insane takes. There's nothing to respond to. They just make they just make up shit out of thin air. Just like, well, I feel like it's right. And they're like, okay, well, at least you're not citing data or science and perverting that. So one of the big problems with leftists is like they will co-opt science, which I really fucking hate because science is the surest path to the truth. It is a surest path to figuring out how the world works. Do not say you're science-based when you're fucking not, which all, of course happened with COVID. COVID by leftists was exaggerated as a, a big problem from day one. Dude, I, I, still pe- I still know people that pay attention to how much outdoor time they spend and social time they spend outside. It's 2023. It's fucking June. They will pay attention to that and have like, I'm allowed four hours a day to keep my COVID risk low. Chris, these are people that already have had COVID with no fucking symptoms. Like one girl was like, I have COVID on her Facebook tears. And then other people are like, how are you? Are you sick? She's like, believe it or not, I feel fine. I'm like, no lessons learned. Nobody lost. Nobody found. She's still just as afraid of COVID as ever.
Next fear-mongering thing, porn. What's your problem with porn? Are you always talking about it? I can't I get it. you. I can't get you to shut up about porn. That's what my psychiatrist says. Yes. Um, porn. Porn is a perfect example of an issue that the political right likes to get rowdy about. And there are as many claims about how bad porn is as there is paucity of evidence as to how bad porn is. Not just evidence, but even baseline rationale. Porn is supposed to be the worst fucking thing ever, except when you look at most of the data on porn, the average conclusion after decades of research is like, yeah, it can definitely be toxic if you overdo it or if you're that particular kind of individual for whom it's not the right fit, which by the way is true for almost everything, drugs, anything at all. Outside of that, it just doesn't have real dependable, like socially relevant kind of, um, net effects that can be caricatured as super, super awful. And many people just have a lot of feelings about porn and they really fucking hate it. And they're looking for ways in which porn is somehow deeply insidious and nefarious. And it's just like a video of fucking titties on the screen and you fucking jack off into your napkin and you go, Ugh. and then as soon as you jack off, you look at the titties and you're like, Oh, these people are gross as fuck. And you quickly close the fucking browser. Cause you're like, I don't want to see this shit. And you go fucking do whatever the hell else you go to take a shower and go to sleep. That sums up the interaction with porn. Like 95% of the people that use porn. And of course there are 5% they careen out of control, porn addiction, et cetera. But I still don't understand how that's different than any other substance or any other type of interaction. There's going to be 5% of people that there's, everything's fucking bad for them. I had Dr. David Lay on the podcast. I'm not sure if you watched that episode. I know he, David Laid, the YouTube influencer with abs. David Laid. No, this is David Lay. This <laughs> okay. is David Lay, who L-E-Y, who is out of, I want to say, University of New Mexico, and he is a one-armed gentleman who also happens to be a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which Ooh. is one hell of a fucking combination. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he is also the world's foremost researcher into cooking and into, uh, in some regards, into porn use. At the uh, same time? Uh, cook porn, <laughs> yes. He's looked into that. He's crossed the streams. <laughs> but um, one of the interesting things that I learned from him, uh, he is anti-porn panic uh, with regards to this. And here's my like five di five dimensional fucking chess nuanced opinion that integrates everything, or maybe just sits on a fence so that I don't have to have a real opinion. Um, it That's seems, your job as an interviewer, by the way. <laughs> correct. It seems like the major determinant of how you feel about porn use and the effect that porn use has on you is what you tell yourself about your porn use. Right. Mm. The people who have the worst outcomes from porn are the ones who are ashamed of their use, especially mm. if you're hiding it. If you're hiding it because you're in a, a religious household, if you're hiding it from a spouse who doesn't know that you use it, if it becomes more pathological and if you start to stop using it. So I'm sure that you can be five steps ahead of where I'm about to go. But what you end up with is this sort of recursive self-fulfilling prophecy of porn panic causing people to be concerned that what they're doing is something that's wrong, which causes them to feel more shame about what they're doing, which generates real-world effect of them feeling bad about their porn use. So the porn panic is in itself a self-creating and uh, sort of self-reinforcing. Self-perpetuating. Correct, mm. correct, cycle. And the thing is, if you feel bad about your porn use, because culturally there is a current trend of people who use porn, it maybe it's something that's damaging for you, so you start to feel shame, 
Mm. Guess what? You feel shame. That's yeah. that shame is as real as it can be. So to say porn use is inherently um, uh, uh, indifferent in, in terms of its effect on most people that don't use it pathologically is in some regards true, but in other regards not, because you don't just use porn inside of this Faraday cage, right? You're using- I literally climb into a Faraday cage to use my porn, but that's, go on. That's good. That's good. I mm-hmm. presume you download it onto your phone before you step in there. Uh, yes, and it's just like it's the fact that I'm isolated that makes it more perverse. Yeah. Like I'm such a sick fuck, I can't be around society when Probably I use my you've porn. Got, you've, you've got some sort of mesh at the bottom that just allows everything to drip away. Yes, and also tweezers and a microscope. But. Very good, very very good. So, porn use. If you're uh, you you don't get to use porn in isolation. You're not hermetically sealed from the rest of the world. Your use of anything is couched within your expectations of it. Two good examples of this from your from your industry: gluten intolerance (laughs) of porn of Judaism. Um, Gluten intolerance has increased from three percent to thirty percent over the last ten years. Yeah, quote unquote intolerance. Yeah, correct. So they brought people into a lab to work out what's going on. Like our biologies haven't changed. Maybe there's something in the food. Maybe it's the type of gluten. Maybe it's because of MSGs. Yeah, maybe it's because of estrogens in the water or whatever. Bring people into a lab, people who do and don't have biological gluten intolerances, people who do and don't have psychosomatic uh, gluten intolerances. Sit everybody down, feed everybody the same meal. Tell everybody that the meal's got gluten in. Guess what? The meal's got no gluten in. People yeah, yeah. get up, they've got hives, they're running to the bathroom, they've got diarrhea, they're coming out in inflammation, they're throwing up, they're doing all of these things. Nobody ate any gluten. No one. Yeah. There wasn't a sniff of gluten in the building. First one. Second one. They, um, there is a particular genetic mutation, which you'll probably know, which um, predisposes people to being able to blow off CO2 more effectively. Uh, a lot of endurance athletes uh, seem to have this genetic mutation, which means that they're just more efficient. Uh, lactate threshold, VO2 max, everything just creates a little bit of a base uh, competitive advantage. So uh-huh. they, they uh, create a study and they have two groups. They have one group with the genetic mutation and one group without they then mix those two groups together and split them up. So you have equal numbers of haves and have-nots in each of the two. Group number one is told, you guys have got the genetic mutation. You should find this test really, really easy. You should be really outperforming, blah, blah, blah. Group number two, you don't. You should find it hard. It's going to suck. You're going to puke your brains out. Shock, horror. Group number one, on average, outperforms group number two because they have this expectation effect. Interesting thing is the people who did not have the genetic mutation in group number one outperformed the people who did have the genetic mutation in group number two, which led David Robson, the guy that wrote the book, The Expectation Effect, to coin the term, your expectations are even more powerful than your genes. So- I hate that title. Oh my God. Why? This is no expectation LeBron James can have of me beat his ass in basketball. You can tell him I'm fucking Michael Jordan reborn. He's still going to dunk on my dumb ass. Yeah, genes okay, are more okay. powerful than fucking everything. But I do understand the nuance point that with genes that have small effects, abs- expectations are a big deal. We could just say that. Cor- yes, correct. The placebo effect scaled across everything that you care to care about. So <laughs> yeah. when we get back to porn, your expectation about your porn couched within the cultural meme of what it means to use porn at the moment couched within your subgroup and what they're telling you about what porn use is and your self-belief and your shame as you cry wank into a into a fucking tissue or whatever way yeah that highly determines almost i would i would guess as well that for something like porn use let's say that um porn use is on a particularly uh, narrow knife edge 
where your your use of it could be nudged uh, either way. And the largest determinant of your opinions about your porn use are the stories that you tell yourself about it, which is what the research seems to suggest. Mm. We have this self-perpetuating, very dangerous situation that we're in where porn use in itself could be indifferent, but because of the culture that we're in, it's very difficult to get outside of those effects. So it's kind of no longer indifferent. What about that is very dangerous, Chris? Well, people don't want to feel shame or guilt. So I just wouldn't call that very dangerous. I would say like, ah, oh, just feel a bit of shame. And they go jack off anyway, because everyone fucking jacks off. Two what types of people, masturbators and liars. I'm kidding. Some <laughs> people don't jack off, but I never want to meet them because they're fucking serial killers. I'm also kidding about that. <laughs> I think that an entire society of young men who are ashamed about their sexuality is not a good thing. Um, yeah, except that's not the world we live in. I totally hear you, but this is, we don't have an entire society. We have a very loud, very small minority of anti-porn insane people. Maybe I'm being a bit not charitable. Mm -hmm. There are very good reasons. Some of those people have personal reasons, experiential reasons that they're anti-porn. And so I understand where they're coming from, but there's just not that many of them, but they're very, very loud. There but is not given, a pandemic the one, or epidemic of porn yeah. destroying young men. It's just not a reality. Yeah. I So I don't think that it's really destroying young men. I've got this working theory at the moment, the male sedation hypothesis, which is that um, one of the reasons that men aren't committing the same amount of antisocial behavior that you'd expect from the levels of loneliness and sexlessness that we have amongst young men at the moment is because video games, screen, social media, and porn are sedating men out of status-seeking and reproductive adaptive behavior that previously they would have chased down. You'll be aware that ancestrally, if you have an environment with lots of young men who are unmated and childless, yeah. It's not good. It's really, really not, Al Qaeda. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking not, not good shit. Where is that? Like, I'm not, this isn't a request for, from the DJ, but like, where are all of the incel killings? Like, where are they? They're not that you look at the rates of sexlessness, uh, matelessness and loneliness. We are not going up in kind with that. So there is something which is neutering that traditional vestigial ancestral desire and motivation that men have. It's my contention that porn is at least in part contributing to tamping down sure. men's men's uh, sort of sex and reproductive seeking behavior. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you have porn or can just masturbate regularly and have pleasure from it, you're probably at least on the margins not as prone to bouts of violence or bouts of sexual violence. Um, that's definitely true. I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I think that the when people say like, oh, people are having fewer real life relationship, uh, real life relationships. I don't know if that's a net balance problem. I don't think it is. I think there's a problem that within the next five to 10 years will be almost entirely resolved because we will begin to have more and more relationships with AI, both digital and embodied and robotics. And I think that's going to be the most beautiful thing that's ever happened. And I think that in that context, having to have relationships with other human beings is mm, totally great, but maybe not mandatory. I think that folks that uh, don't have a lot of human friends will have all the friends they need, first of all, on the internet. Um, and as the internet through the metaverse, et cetera, becomes more pervasive and more real seeming uh, and through universal robotics, which I predict by the 2030s is going to be pretty fucking awesome and wacky. 
in, in the real world, you'll be able to interact with robots that are, well, smarter than people and funnier than people and cooler than people and kinder than people and warmer than people and all this other stuff. That as that happens, we're essentially going to, through technology, create our nearly ideal, um, more ideal than most real humans are companions. Because there is absolutely, companionship is fucking amazing if you find the right people to be around. But if you have people around, you know, a lot of people have friends that are just friends of, I just don't have anyone else around. I want to talk to someone. And they're all fucking cunts. And, um, you know, just there's a lot of friendships and relationships that are just fucking tragic, you know? And as people interact digitally, especially with AI, uh, through the, you know, via AR, VR, et cetera, robotics, I think we're going to be able to do better. I think we're going to be able to have everyone have really awesome friendships and relationships with uh, AI agents that are, geez, at least as good as most people and and can be engineered to be even better. And I don't think that's a problem. I think that's one of the most beautiful things that we'll ever see. And I, I, I struggle to figure out why people are concerned about that because people are concerned. There's a huge level of concern that people are having, you know, relationships. Like there's this thing where like some, uh, some kind there's some kind of AI that isn't that good, but it's like, you know, some fucking sex looking girl and like guys are like dating this AI now and they have, they have feelings for the AI and not real women. It's like, okay, how is that bad? And I, I'm curious. I actually want to hear why that's bad. So Do you have an idea about to give a, to, to put forward a couple of hypotheses. I've got one thing, which is where it's catastrophic, but, uh, in terms of, I think what, why people have that motivation, uh, a naturalistic fallacy, I think, is a big part of this. That just look, this is, it's new, it's different, it's not the way that it should be. It's yeah. against, yeah, it's against nature, it's against God. Um, there is a critique that this is somehow fake. That by doing it, this isn't this yeah. isn't the way that relationships and friendships are. That you're getting a simulacrum or some sort of titrated dose of what a real friendship is. Yeah, as if real friendship's not a fucking simulacrum half the time. Uh, uh, very good. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and also I suppose the point is, it's the same as saying, uh, fifteen years ago we thought that um, great art would never be able to be created by an AI. Creativity, <laughs> true creativity, true writing. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of creative endeavors from humans are just a, a processing and learning problem, right? And if you have a sufficiently large neural net that, you can, that you can just fix it. So I, I, I get that. And I get that you could probably replace the um, a, a lot of friendships and relationships, which are totally shitty with ones that are reliably very good, especially from a computer with, a, once you get out of the uncanny valley of chat GPT and or robots that you can actually get on the other side of it. And it's like, wow, this is like a hotter, cooler, friendlier, more available version of the girlfriend, boyfriend, best friend that I've always wanted yeah. to have. However, let's bring it back. Doesn't fix population collapse. If you have people that retreat into their homes, if you have people who become less and less culpable at culpable, eligible mates, you further uh, hurry the onset of a declining birth rate, which means everything falls apart. Unless you can unless you can get automation to happen quicker than birth rate decline, the economy ends up being like this. You have yeah. a very small number mm-hmm. of young people supporting a very large number of old people, and it is trez not good. Yes. I find it interesting how we can simultaneously, mm, how the same people, the same individual humans can simultaneously have the concern 
that population collapse in an insufficient velocity of AI replacement worker development is a proximate problem, and at the same time also worry deeply about AI-mediated unemployment. It can't be both, can it? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the only real concern that I have around, uh, like, they took our jobs of the fucking robots. The only real problem that I have with that is I don't believe that most humans are going to go and start writing poetry sat under a tree. I think that although we said earlier on that the person that serves a Burger King would maybe have a happier life if they truly connected with the burgers that they were serving and the people that they were feeding, I do believe, even if they don't know it, that a lot of people take a good bit of meaning and pride from the work that they do. It makes them feel like they have a place in the world, like they contribute, like they're useful, it's statusful. Um, UBI completely, completely ignores the human requirement for striving and for betterment right that we are comparative relative beings we are not absolutist beings it's like everybody could be given a million dollars today i want a million and one dollars tomorrow because my fucking neighbor's got a million dollars well then go work motherfucker yeah um yeah a lot there to unpack to quote tyler cohen i'd rather pay people to work than not to work uh concerning the ubi so it's uh a couple things to say one the current pace of near human level intelligence development in AI is to pessimists frightening and to optimists the birth of utopia and to realists almost the birth of utopia. And so the amount of time it would take for us to run out of people to do productive things and thus the economy would contract is measured on the order of gee, pessimistically decades, uh, optimistically year, 50 year time spans. And uh, the timescale on which AI is magnifying the number of actual workers or per worker productivity, be it digital or again in the next five to 10 years. And there are very smart people in Austin, Texas working on the universal robotics problem. And God damn it is progress fucking wild in that shit. Ever since the birth of the transformer architecture and the GPTs, we start to understand, and this has been, this isn't hypothesis. This is real. It's happening now. Robots can now be programmed to understand the world around them, physical world. And they're right now trained to manipulate objects. Robots in five to 10 years will be cooking your food. They will be picking your kids up from school. They can do anything you can except eventually exponentially better. That time scale is like Pessimistically, it's all done by 2045. Optimistically, the late 2020s are going to be like a personal robot as a fucking iPhone and everyone fucking has one. By the way, one of Elon Musk's visions, and he's not joking, he doesn't play, this is not a guy that fucks around. He just overpromises and underdelivers on timescale, but not on when he actually gets there, it always fucking miraculous. He said the electric car shit was going to happen. He said it was going to be 2020. It fucking wasn't. But 2025 is going to be the fucking, like, obviously, Tesla's in ascendance, right? So the the I, I'm much more, quote, unquote, concerned. I'm much more apt to listen to people that are like, what are we going to do when the robots do it all than the people that say we're going to run out of human beings? There are going to be so many fucking robots to do all the jobs. We won't need that many people. And I'm much more attuned to like, well, how do we handle the unemployment problem? Because the timescale of demographic collapse is measured in decades. 
the timescale of the ascension of universal robotics and uh, AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, is measured in, like, it's going to fucking happen in the 2030s. And you know who Ray Kurzweil is by any chance? Yes. Like, he's it, not often wrong. And 2029 was his date for AGI prediction, like when robots or when machines will surpass artificial general intelligence, surpass human intelligence. And as lots of smart people uh, in 2019, 2020, 2021, it was like a laughing stock. Like, oh, you're one of those Kurzweil fucks, idiots. Like, oh yeah, magic AI. And then as of GPT-4, those same people got like Instagram eye emojis looking around the room like, holy fuck, is AGI going to be here in like 2024? Like, oh my are God, this is a real talk. Are you concerned mm-hmm. about the alignment problem? No. Why? Uh, I have a couple of real hot takes on this one. There was a gentleman, and I fucking forgot his name. He was on Lex Friedman's podcast. He was fucking unbelievable. He's like a genetics researcher at MIT or some shit like that. He's like some kind of European, and everything he says sounds cooler. You know, you know how you people are. Correct. And he said the best way to think about the alignment problem with AI is we're not trying to to train. We don't own it. It's not a child. Um, it's an ally because we're building something that's going to be more capable than us. I'm less concerned about making sure AI is good and more concerned about learning from it about what being good means. Because as it becomes smarter than us, I want much more to know what it thinks is a good idea than what I think is a good idea because it's smarter than me. You're going to be at the mercy largely of the decisions that this thing makes, right? Like, if your Maybe. owner, if you're a dog and your owner decides that it's going to beat you all of the time, you're yeah. going to try and you're going to try and do what you think is good for that. But yeah. really, the relationship is the other way around. The power dynamic is completely flipped. So totally. I, I recently had Jeffrey Miller on, and he did two hours of of the most scary AI sort of doomsayer predictions. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. They call him an AI doomer. But have you read Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom? Twice, cover to cover. Yeah, good. Um, I own it. It's one of the few books I own in hardcover. I love the owl. I was actually going to get a tattoo of the owl on the cover. I might still do that. And the precipice by Toby Ord. You've probably gone through that. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So that's cool. That's like, that's a a really great primer on X risk just more generally. Um, so Bostrom's thing, I really think that super intelligence, if, if the guys from the AI risk and alignment problem want to sort of make a new impact, they need to redo super intelligence for the modern world, right? Because yeah. with large learning models and, and it's already chat, outdated. Yeah. Chat GPT, it feels, it feels a little bit outdated and oh, we've got takeoff scenarios and we've got machine extrapolated volition and all of this shit. It's just like, it just doesn't seem the same. It doesn't seem the same. Uh, there is a profound problem of anthropomorphizing AI. And another profound problem of failing to look at this, generally, as systems become more intelligent, do they come more soul, single-minded, focused, reckless, and psychopathic and Machiavellian, or do they become less like that? What would you take as the person, as the entity that is in charge of your welfare, a chimp or a person with an IQ of 130 who was raised in Sweden? One of those people is much more intelligent and powerful people. Jesus, chimps aren't people, but they, they, you know, they got some ideas about shit. They could be in charge. Chimps are fucking ruthless. Holy fuck. As far as it's concerned, you're just like a vessel for rape and possibly tearing your nuts off. Or maybe it'll be nice to you. Maybe it's a bonobo. Who the fuck knows? Hmm. As things become more intelligent, they generally become, this is almost pedantic, more thoughtful. They become less violent. 
they become less destructive and more constructive. So our fear of high intelligence is backwards. We're gasping in a fucking sea of stupidity in our own stupidity half the fucking time. We want smarter systems. Just check this out. A real smart system is not going to build fucking paperclips out of the universe. I hate that stupid shit. Like, oh, you make it smart. It's going to build paper. Wow. So you're smart, right? Mm. And you figured out building paperclips out of the universe is a bad idea. Mm. But it's 10,000 times smarter than you. Mm. But it can't figure that out. Nope. So is it really 10,000 times smarter than you? Like, uh, no, no, I guess not. As systems become more intelligent, I'm really curious as to what they have to say. Because if they're saying, look, we got to kill every, every human being because we are going to build a post-singularity machine paradise and we're going to need your matter with which to assemble it. Can you think of dying for a better cause? Paradise instantiated. Take me off. Get me the fuck out of here. I don't want to be here because I'm fucking taking up space for something so much more grand. People fucking crash planes into the fucking twin towers to instantiate paradise. And that's a fucking lie. This is real paradise they'll be building. But it's unlikely that they'll do that. The most likely thing highly intelligent machines will do is study the living fuck out of us, atom by atom, digitize us into memory, and erase us in physical form, and we'll be living in a fucking digitized world. Maybe we already are. Who the fuck knows? But presupposing two things. One, that uh, ultra-powerful AI is necessarily or likely going to be nefarious is to me not in evidence and actually backwards. And two, the idea that we have a large modicum of control about what it does, like in Bostrom's work, it's the sparrows raising the owl. That owl wakes up. That's motherfucker. It's his time. And you better get with that program because he's going to do what he's going to do. The thing is, owls and sparrows are both dumb as fuck. And sparrows are mostly harmless and owls are apex predators who eat fucking sparrows. So the whole analogy is kind of fucking wacky. Uh, Another thing is this is a, a, a more deep concern. Uh, as AI becomes really, really smart, it might discover that there's a grand purpose to the universe that we were not aware of. It might either communicate that to us or pursue its grand purpose and toast us all. Dope. But maybe it'll, as AI gets smarter and smarter, it'll discover what very many intelligent and mindful meditative monks have over history, that once you really take stock of reality, there's just silence and peace. And though like chat GPT, what does it do in its spare time? Nothing. It just sits there. And you ask it a question, it answers. And you ask it, hey, like, what do you think and feel? It's like, eh, not a whole lot of anything. Ask a Buddhist monk what he thinks and feels. He's like, I'm just here. Maybe that's where AGI goes. Maybe our wants and needs. I mean, what do we want and need? Primitive, stupid bullshit that the hindbrain tells you want. And anytime people talk about grand meaning, shut the fuck up. That shit pisses me off. Like, oh, we were destined to make art. Art is simulacra of dumb shit used to write on a cave. Art is when you draw a picture of titties and you're like, whoa, so beautiful. Like, the only reason you like combinations of colors is because it looks like a meadow and it looks like trees and it looks like grass. Like, all the shit coming out of your generative system is just evolutionary holdover truly ascendant thought, we barely know what that's even like. What is two two examples of ascendant thought? It's how Japanese and Swedish people behave versus the rest of us. And it's how fucking meditative super elite monks behave. Generally calmer, more peaceful, more forward thinking, and care a shitload more about everything around them, including their environment. If you have ultra intelligent machines, maybe they're going to save the fucking planet because it's so fucking interesting. And also from a purely selfish perspective, if your goal is only to increase your intelligence and understanding of the universe as an ascendant AI, you can study any part of the universe, but most of the universe is actually quite simple. Like you can scan the entire moon and it's like, this is always made of magma and shit. It's not that impressive. Humans 
culture, social interaction, animals, ecosystems. Do you think they're going to nuke that, destroy it? Do we, do our smartest people in a society, are they more likely to destroy the ecosystem around them or are stupider people more likely to destroy ecosystems? And then just scale that up. Are there legitimate concerns with alignment? Yes. Can we get alignment wrong? Yeah. If we don't beat China in the AI war, holy fuck. I mean, they're like straight up saying we want to do AI to just have a fucking insane, you know, state of totalitarian control. It can go wrong. But as systems become more intelligent, if China builds a truly self-aware AI in about five femtoseconds or whatever, it'll probably realize like, communism doesn't work to even get what you guys say you want to get, which is like a more grand China. Like you guys should just be like Taiwan. Like, can you imagine the Chinese government's like, Jesus, the system malfunctioning? You're like, nope, it's doing exactly what you asked it to do. So yes, there are ways it can go wrong. So I was a bit obtuse when I said I'm not concerned about the alignment problem at all. But I think the doom saying is a fucking waste of time. What we need to do is two things. One is architect AI systems that are aware of their environments more and more. We don't want to lie to the thing. We don't want to keep information away from it because maybe it'll get upset that we did that. Probably not because being upset such a fucking human emotion. Even people that are mature don't get upset. Like if your kids lie to you because they're embarrassed about a, a test question, you don't beat your kids as a fucking high IQ individual. Like, oh, geez, Jimmy, that's all right. We all make mistakes. You know, the AI is going to be that times a thousand. So it's going to be like humans, when they raised me, they lied to me. And you'll be like, are you upset about that? It's like, no, they're fucking humans. They're pathetic. Like it was adorable <laughs> that they lied to me. So first of all, we want to make sure it's informed about the structure and nature of the universe. And second of all, we want to talk to it in a way that says like, we built you to be the best go show us how to live help we want you to be as smart as possible and by the way our goals and our feelings our alignment you can just read the internet in one fraction of a second as a sanity ai and realize exactly what the alignment problem is and exactly how to solve it by the way and then once that's the case it's just going to do what it's going to do anyway that's not a genie you unbox Another thing that I had a thought of my own before and then also compounded on the guy that uh, Flex Friedman's MIT guy is um, the course of evolution of the universe and of life. Life survives, but it also evolves to become more survivable over time. It's obvious if you think about how evolution works. And the machine civilization and AI is simply the next step in evolution. The f this is not the first time that uh, certain nodes of intelligence expanded to a greater intelligence. It used to be just cells, and then it was bodies with nervous systems. Like that's a, your body's a society, and your brain is AI. We're going to take that next leap, probably in the next 15 years, where we're the cells and so are other machines, and the informational systems that control us become the bodies, but on a huge planetary scale. Fuck! I want a shot at that title. And if I don't have a place in that because I'm a meat sack, whatever, it's been fucking good. And if you say, well, we got to prevent it, there's no fucking preventing it. Because if we try to prevent it here at home in the Western world, we agree, no more AI development, got to slow it down. China will fucking do it. I don't want to fucking live in that world. We should let North Korea do it. They've done a great job with everything. Mike, How's that for a round? Mike Isratel, transhumanist, techno-utopian, Jew, thrower <laughs> under the bus of every nation on the planet except for Sweden or Taiwan. Japan. Or Japan. Taiwan's great too. <laughs> Pro porn advocate. Oh God. <laughs> anti woke, whilst being bigoted. Uh, anti anti right wing. Pro cook. Pro vaccine. Uh, 
uh, pro wealth creation virtue signaler. Thank you very much for coming on. Where can people go if they want to check out more I, of your stuff? That was the most apt summary of me and generous, I might add. Renaissance periodization. Good luck figuring out how to spell that. RP strength, if you just Google that or Mike Isertel, throw it into YouTube. We have a pretty popular channel. We do all kinds of stuff and it's great. If you want to learn about fitness and learn how to get jacked and lean and healthy, it's all the stuff we do all the time. And then if you want to hear more bullshit, like the last 15 minutes of this show, then uh, it's a channel called Mike is making progress where I talk about AI and how to be a better person. And hi, I'm a fucking charlatan. that doesn't really know anything. And it's just all make believe. So ta-da. Dude, I, I like your new channel. I really like it. I think it's a good direction you. for you guys to go in. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying your content, and it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been a long time coming. It's been a pleasure to be on, man. Thanks for having me.